seek the Lord's favor, shall we, on His Word before we enter into it? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that what's presented may be as John the Baptist long ago thought to do, uh, to decrease so that Christ would increase. And Lord, we pray that we consider the marvels of this one whose shoes we are not fit to tie or to untie. We pray that we would exalt his name in response to your word. Your word may come forth faithfully clear and relevant and above all, bring glory to your name. And may we receive it in such a way so that whether it's here or wherever we go, we may know your mercy and your blessing as we praise you. So may your spirit so work in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be taking a look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through, I have 13, and that's what I wrote, but actually it's 1 through 12, so that's on me. But uh, we're also going to be taking a look in Heidelberg Catechism in light of God's Word at Lord's Day 27. Typically, we go through the confessions with uh, confessional preaching at one of our services that's our calling in the church order to do that. And uh, I've been looking at Luke chapter 1 uh, in both services of late, but it happened to be by God's providence that we were going to be taking up this particular Lord's Day that deals with baptism and also with infant baptism. So I thought, why not use that this morning? So that's what we're doing. It's timely. It's appropriate given that we just saw a baptism. We take a look at... Uh, Lord's Day uh, 27 then, and also Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. So we'll pick up there first, reading from the Word of God, from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan was going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is at his hand, or is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We look at Lord's Day 27 out of uh, the blue hymnal. You can find this if you want to follow along on page 35 where we read these questions and answers, 72, 73, 74. 
Uh, does this outward washing with water itself wash away sin? No, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Question 73. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sin? God has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that the blood and Spirit of Christ wash away our sins just as washed water washes away dirt from our bodies. But more important, He wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that the washing away of our sins spiritually is as real as physical washing with water. Question 74 asks, should infants too be baptized? The answer is yes. Infants as well as adults are in God's covenant and are His people. They know less than adults are promised the forgiveness of sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who produces faith. Therefore, by baptism, the mark of the covenant, infants should be received into the Christian church and should be distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. May God's blessing be upon us, indeed, in the truths and the reading of His Word. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when it, when it comes to valuing things, it's important, of course, to keep a proper balance. You've probably heard me say that more often from this pulpit and even from Bible studies that we have carried out. Uh, we can overvalue things even to the point of idolatry, and we can undervalue things to, to a point of a lack of stewardship. Uh, it should be of no surprise, therefore, that we shouldn't overestimate or underestimate Christian baptism. That's the spirit that we find in the catechism, that it wants to keep us from doing both of those things. We state that in response to God's Word, in part because keeping balance that way it has a positive effect upon our life, upon our walk with the Lord. So this morning, we wanted to take a look, given the fact that we had a baptism this morning, an infant baptism uh, on top of that, uh, we wanted to take a look at this calling to keep baptism in proper balance, not to overestimate it and not to underestimate it. So we don't want to overestimate baptism. Well, how can we do that? Well, there's different ways that that can happen. The catechism describes a common overestimation of baptism. Does the external baptism with water wash away sin itself? And the answer is no. Only the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit can wash away sin. People in the Bible overestimated signs and objects of God's grace on a number of occasions, and people still do it today. We can go to 1 Corinthians 10, where the Apostle Paul recalls Old Testament Israel and how they viewed the New Testament-like sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper in their time. The Apostle says that they were baptized into Moses and that they ate of the heavenly food, but that they all died in the desert. If they partook of the sacraments, the mentality was, in essence, well, that's all that mattered. They'd been baptized, as it were, and they had partaken of the manna. But they overestimated their value. And that was a warning to the church in Corinth and also in the New Testament church as a whole. What did the people in the time of Eli do back in the times of 1 Samuel? 
We remember that they took the Ark of the Covenant into battle, and they thought that if they did that, that'd be kind of like a good luck charm for them. And it even caused the, uh, the heathens among them, those who were not in the covenant, to, to shudder because they saw that the Ark of the Covenant had been brought into battle. But the problem was that these people who were in the covenant didn't discern between the sign and the reality. The Ark pointed into the, to the, uh, unto the presence of God. But that sign meant nothing to them because it was not received in faith. God was not with them. For they did not rely on God. They relied on superstition. Why did Josiah have to crush the Nahushtan, the bronze serpent, as he did in 2 Kings 18.4, that had been used to heal people once upon a time in the wilderness community? Why? Because people were focusing their faith on the sign, on that bronze serpent, instead of the one to whom the sign pointed. They overvalued the sign. And that kind of overvaluing still happens today. It was an issue when the catechism was written, and it still plagues the church. People are taught that baptism baptism's water is intrinsically powerful. That by the act performed, grace is conferred. So much so that the Roman church declares that justification is, first of all, through baptism. That's how important baptism is to the Christian experience, they would say. And such a belief focuses then on the water instead of Christ and his spirit. And it fails to make a distinction between the sign and the ones to whom it points. Too much value is placed on the sign so that your hope's in the sign instead of in the ones to whom it points. And that's why there are those who see the need of even emergency baptism, lest little ones be doomed for eternity. I've been encountered by that before. Such an overvaluing leads not only to a lack of focus on Christ, it also leads to complacency, which John addresses with the Pharisees here in our passage, and the Sadducees, who we read in our passage, come to his baptism. They come to his baptism. The Pharisees and Sadducees are called by John a brood of vipers, warned of the wrath to come. Now that would have surprised them. Because they considered themselves not as children of the devil, which is what brood of the vipers would be, because you would be those hatched out, newly born children of the snake or the serpent. But they didn't think of themselves as the children of the devil. Far from it. They, they considered themselves children of Abraham. Perhaps they figured to get baptized was simply the fitting thing for them to do because they were the righteous. Well, if that was so, then if that's how they looked at it, then they would have been undervaluing baptism, while at the same time, given John's proclamation, they would have certainly been overvaluing their circumcision. Now, they were indeed physical children of Abraham. They were children of the covenant that way. 
They had received the sign of the covenant at that time before, which would have been circumcision. But they are described here as children of the devil. They, like everyone, needed a change of heart. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent. They needed the grace of God, just like everybody else. John's proclamation was preparing the way for God to come, incarnate. The way of the Lord, calling people to turn from their sin turn and to turn to God, because the Lord was coming. And he would come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when, when baptism is overvalued, people get complacent. It's what's called nominal Christianity, right? Christianity by name only. There's no need for faith. There's no need for penitence. There's no need for commitment. There's no need for a change of life. All that's important is that I go through the ritual. I go through the motion. I go through the rites. It's just important that I was baptized once upon a time. That's all that matters. And that fosters a false sense of security. Sacraments end up saving you. And whether it's baptism or the Lord's Supper or any other man-made sacrament or ritual, what matters is that I partake of the sacrament. That's all that matters. And yet to be a child of Abraham means to be a child of faith, a child of God in Christ. You can't just say, I've been baptized so now I can live and I can believe whatever I want because my physical tie to a believer is going to get me by. And John says God can raise stones to be children of, of, of believers, children of Abraham. There's nothing special in that regard if that's your attitude toward the way you live and what you believe and your need for penitence. Our relation to a believing parent that allowed us to be baptized doesn't give us license to live as children of the devil and to become some. We put way too much value on baptism that way. Many walk around today and make way too much of their baptism. They were christened once. They were baptized once. And what's happened is, is that that has led to a nominal Christianity with a form of godliness because you had some water put on you once, but it lacks power. It lacks the reality. And they've been baptized, but there's no penitent. There's no penitent life. There's no radical change. There's, there, there's no concern for God's cause. There's no desire to pray. There's no desire to worship. There's no desire to to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And that's because baptism's been overvalued. And that's dangerous. Some people think that, that you have to be immersed to be considered properly baptized. Well, that too's overvaluing baptism. Baptism, whatever the form, is not indispensable for salvation. Only Christ and His Spirit are indispensable for our salvation, along with God the Father. And when that truth is in our heart, 
that only God is indispensable, the triune God. Well, then we won't be complacent. We won't. And we won't be nominal Christians. We won't. And then what will happen is we will do what John says. We will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It'll show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. People will be able to see who you are. People see who you are anyway. But you want to be seen. We want to be seen as people who bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But there's also the danger of undervaluing baptism. And we can do that in different ways too. One catechism, our catechism points out why baptism is described the way it is. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing way of regeneration and the washing way of sin? So isn't that just telling us then that, you know, that that's what baptism does? No, it's, again, we've got to keep the proper balance there. Even though we need to distinguish between the sign and, and, and the one to whom it points, but we don't want to separate the two either. There's an association there between the work of Christ and the sign that points to that work. And if we don't keep that association in mind, then we will undervalue the sacrament. Well, how do we do that? Well, first of all, we fail to see that the Spirit makes use of this sacrament as a teaching and confirming tool for the believer in whom he's working. He's using it as a sign and a seal to teach and to reassure. Baptism doesn't wash away sin. But it teaches us by way of the Holy Spirit how our sins are washed away. It takes the attention off of us, puts it on God. That's the only way we can have assurance is when our attention is on God. The Spirit uses the sacrament not to dispense grace, but to graciously communicate to our hearts about the grace of God. Of God. In Christ and by His Spirit. And far from being a sacrament that's to be used to focus upon ourselves, because that's the only time that we lose out, is when our focus is on ourselves. I mean, that's what, isn't what life's about anyway. That's always our temptation. That's always our sin, right? When we just want to say, spotlight me. Baptism says, spotlight God. That's what our lives seem to be like. So far from being a sacrament that's used to focus upon ourselves, as the Pharisees were tempted to do, the Sadducees, and modern evangelicalism can tend to do, the Spirit teaches us about our spiritual filthiness. That only Christ and His Spirit can cleanse sent by the Father. Now sometimes we, you know, we, we see conversion as something that's done apart from baptism. A person signs a card or he comes forward during an altar call. But where's baptism? Where's that? The assurance for a, a convert and the further instruction from the Lord doesn't come from signing a card or walking down an aisle, but in the sacrament that is received as a tool of the Spirit. 
Well, the sacrament of baptism is also undervalued today when people are looking for signs beyond baptism and, for that matter, communion. People want to see spectacle because somehow they think that's going to supercharge them and that's going to make them feel the way they want to feel. You know, with the Word, we've got the sufficiency for doctrine and for life. And yet with the giving of the sacraments, the Spirit is pleased to work, and that's a remarkable thing, He's pleased to work His grace of instruction and of assurance. You know, that we've been touched by the grace of God. Sacraments are marvelous things that way. And so what more can we want? We got the word, we got the sacrament. But when we undervalue the sacraments this way, then we're not content with that. We want more. We just say, that's not enough. I need something more to stimulate me. I need something else to give me a kick. And that's what leads to the occult. That's what leads to disharmony. That's what leads to discontent. It leads us to the following of false prophets. It leads to the focus on spectacle, on symbols and pomp and pageantry and theatrics, rather than on the callings to which we've been called. That's where our focus is supposed to be. And it leads to an undervaluing not only of the sacraments, but of the Word of God itself, with which they agree. And therefore, much peace is lost in the lives of people who are not thinking so much about what God's Word says as they are about what kind of exotic religious experiences that they can receive or they can witness or that they can encounter by whatever religious spectacles that they can watch. Sacrament's also undervalued when one refuses to receive it when one claims to be a Christian. You're not willing to be baptized. You're not willing to be identified with the people of God. And that might lead to, indeed, that, that might be, indeed be the case in places where becoming a Christian would, be, would bring persecution. You risk something when you get baptized. And when you risk something to get baptized, you see the value and importance of baptism. The sacrament is also undervalued when children of the covenant are deprived of the sacrament of baptism. If you think that the baptism is a sign about a believer or about how I've come to Christ and his covenant of grace, if you ever think of, if you even think about a covenant of grace, which a lot of people don't these days, then you've undervalued Baptism, because baptism isn't a sign about my coming to God, or my coming to God in covenant, or about my faith, even. It's a sign that communicates God's grace to me. God's grace as he comes to covenant with me, as a believer, and my children. It communicates God's gracious covenant. I will be God to you and your children. That's a biblical, all the way through, biblical ideal. If baptism is a sign and seal of what I've done, then it's pointing in the wrong direction. The spotlight's in the wrong place. And it gives no assurance to an up-and-down person like I am. I don't want it pointing to me. I want it pointing to God. 
That's where my assurance is. That's where my focus is supposed to be. Not just in my worship, not just as I see baptisms happening, but in my life. What makes baptism valuable is because it communicates and assures of what God's doing. Not what I'm doing. It's God's signature to His covenant. You can bank on His covenant word and His mercies and His promises. And it takes the focus off of you. Thank God for that. And it places it where it belongs. Where all of life belongs. On God. And what He's doing for His people. To deprive children of believers of this sign and seal of God's covenant of grace is to deny them what God promised to Abraham, to whom God gave this covenant of grace. I will be a God to you and to your children after you for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your children after you. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. The promise is to believers, their children, and to those yet to be brought into faith. To deprive covenant children of this sign is to deny that God has a covenant relationship with them that's full of promise. Distinguishing them from the children of unbelief and admitting them into the church of Jesus Christ. But then some say, well, how can you say that everybody who's baptized is given these promises? When we know that many who are baptized aren't saved. You said it yourself. What does this do to God's promises? It does nothing to nullify God's promises. You know, when a teacher promises a class trip to the class and one is sent home because of rebellion, does that make the promise of the teacher any less of a promise? Does that promise get nullified? Not at all. He hasn't broken the promise. He still takes the class on the trip. Just because there were those who didn't want to be considered part of the class because of their rebellion doesn't void the promise to the class. God's promise stands in that same regard. The problem that arises when people who are baptized and aren't saved has nothing to do with God not keeping His promise. It has to do with people who undervalue their baptism. Through baptism, God communicates amazing things. He says, I'm your God. He says, I'm the Savior, and there is no other. He says, I'm king of this world. I've defeated sin, Satan, and death. He says, I, the God of grace, have established my covenant of grace with you. He says, here are my promises, the washing away of sin, the renewing of the heart. This is what I promise to those who are part of my covenant. You're in that covenant now. By faith, then... That's where I want to be, by faith. That's where I want to be. Because I value, you see, what baptism communicates in me. I value my baptism. I cherish God's promises. I cherish my association with His church. I don't try to keep it at arm's length. I value my distinction from the children of unbelievers. Baptism isn't just a custom. 
Something really and covenantally happened at my baptism. God made promises to me. But when I scorn those covenant promises, and people do, and when in essence I rebel against the teacher, and they do, and when I don't want anything to do with that fellowship anymore, and there's people like that, then what one should never want to do is done. I'm out of the fellowship. I'm out of the class, so to speak. I'm out of the covenant of His grace. I have stepped out of the ark that protected me from the waters of death, and now I'm in them. I'm out of the church. And there's a lot of people who don't care. They don't. Why do they do that? Because they don't value their baptism at all. I don't believe that God's promises are for me. I don't want them. Baptism means nothing to me anymore, even though what it communicates is what I should be valuing more than anything else. You see, we can over overvalue baptism, but we can also undervalue it. So when we keep the balance, and we see the importance of our baptism without being superstitious about it. When we keep that balance, God will be honored. He'll be honored for His saving grace, to which baptism points. And when He is honored for His saving grace, He'll be honored in our lives. And how will that happen? It will happen as, as those who therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, both young and old alike. Because those are the people who believe in the marvelous saving grace of the covenant God. Amen. Take a moment to respond in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you teach us about baptism. Keep us, Lord, from doing it just because we do it. Or keep us all and keep us also, Lord, from thinking superstitiously about it. May we see it as we ought, Father, as that point as that which points to what you graciously do for us as believers and how you enter into this covenant with us and our children. But may we not scorn it. May we not disbelieve it. May we find ourselves embracing it and showing forth that we do believe it by keeping in covenant in the bearing of fruit, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, Lord. May we live a penitent life, a faith-filled life, a life that's genuine and not phony because We've taken our baptism seriously, but not superstitiously. We've taken joy in what it points to, the amazing grace of our God. May you accept our prayers for Jesus' sake. Amen.